This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode number seven. Today, my guest is Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, and we'll be talking about inflation and the role that central banks and politicians play. Jacques Boudreau, welcome back to the Darcy Giroux podcast. How are you? Very well. I'm uh, glad to, to be back. Delighted, in fact. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about something I know both you and I have followed closely and are interested in, and we got a lot to cover. Uh, so let's get to it. Pierre Polyev, who's running for the leader of the Conservative Party, got a lot of negative attention with his proposal to audit the Bank of Canada. I believe his chant, his uh, stance has since changed on the audit and is now proposing to simply fire Tiff McClam, the Bank of Canada governor. So tell me about your thoughts on taking on the Bank of Canada from a political perspective and the backlash that uh, Polyev has faced over this. Yeah. Okay. Well, in general terms, certainly at the Libertarian Party of Canada, it has been on our platform for many, many years to have the Bank of Canada audited. So we're certainly not at odds with his position on that. We, and by audit here, because some people have pointed out that it's already audited, but I think what they mean by audit is sort of your traditional audit, making sure the numbers are adding up properly. I think what we have in mind is more of a behind the scenes, um, you know, for example, is the Bank of Canada as independent as is stated? Although on that one, I found out very recently that the actual wording describing its independence is murky at best. So it's, it's not as well defined as it ought to be, but to me that would be part of an audit is to say, well, are you or are you not independent? I, I certainly would point to seeing Macklem with, um, I think it might have been uh, Freeland's predecessor at the beginning of COVID, but certainly he was sitting at the same table as the fit, uh, Minister of Finance. I, that strikes me as awfully odd uh, if you are indeed independent. I mean, I think what has happened here is the bank, of Can sorry, the, the government of Canada wanted to borrow massive amount of money. And I suspect they were told that if you didn't want interest rates to spike up considerably, you needed someone to come in to purchase all that debt without demanding, you know, a premium. Like in other words, we want to borrow massively, but we want to keep interest rates low. What is the only party that's going to do that? Well, it's the Bank of Canada because they can simply create the money out of thin air and off you go. And I mean, I would be shocked if there weren't all kinds of correspondence or phone calls between the governor of the bank with the minister of finance to arrange the whole thing. So, I mean, on the surface, it just doesn't seem to me that they were independent. So for for Polyev to want to audit to find out what happened seems perfectly legitimate. Now, uh, in terms of firing the governor, well, you look at the mandate, right? Mandate is 
2% inflation rate plus or minus 1%, so like this band of 1 to 3. Well, we haven't been at that level for over a year, and it looks like it's going to stay higher for quite a while. Seems pretty, um, seems pretty obvious to me that someone would have a good case to say, you know what, that was your job, you failed at it, you're, you're gone. Right? I mean, I, I don't think there's anything controversial about this. But the flack that he's getting, in my view, is from the usual collection of statists. And there are an awful lot of them out there. People who look up to the government and, and the Bank of Canada with reverence that these people, you know, for some reason have to be not only obeyed, but they have to be um, almost uh, revered uh, for what they do. And they can't stand the thought that someone would come along and say, you know, we have a problem. I mean, I personally, now mind you, this is a case where the, the governor is kind of told what to do in terms of inflation rate, but I, I have never understood why we want to um, weaken the currency over time or the purchasing power. Like, why, why do we want to aim for 2% per year inflation? Why isn't it zero? I mean, on that score, most people don't know this. And I'm going to quote American numbers here because they're always easier to get than Canadians, but I suspect that our experience here would have uh, paralleled the U.S. one, but it, which is that between 1770 and 1910, approximately, prices were decreasing in the U.S., gently decreasing. I think it averaged a decrease of one to one and a half percent per year. And lo and behold, the growth rates that took place during that period, we've never experienced since like six, seven percent per year. So the whole idea, which is pervasive in many schools of economics, that you need inflation in order to have an economy that works well, is simply not validated by the uh, empirical evidence. So anyway, so in a nutshell, yeah, I, I think Magnum should be fired. I think the Bank of Canada should be audited. And as for people who push back, it was like, well, um, I suppose you have your view, but I have mine, and I, I totally disagree with your reverence for these institutions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you and I look at inflation, it's obvious to us that the Bank of Canada is the main target on who we should blame. Um, but out there, there is some confusion about what inflation really is. Now, can you explain the difference between price inflation and monetary inflation and how the two relate to each other? Sure. So first of all, <laughs> the the definition of what inflation is has morphed over the years. If, if somebody could get their hands on a, or any dictionary that was published prior to approximately 1955, and you looked up the definition of inflation, they would refer to an increase in the money supply, right? That was the textbook definition of inflation. So when I say the, the, um, uh, the definition has morphed is that now people refer to price increases as inflation, when in fact price increases are the end result of the old school definition of inflation, which is an increase in the money supply. Okay, so nowadays inflation refers to increases in prices but, um, again, true inflation is an increase in, in the money supply. Now, what is the money supply is basically the amount of 
money and credit that are available uh, for people to use in order to purchase things. Now, let me bring in something that I've shared with people before, which I think um, helps clearly understand what uh, now it's it's simplified. It's 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 not as complicated as the real world, but I think it illustrates nicely to people how things work. During World War Two, there were um, prisoners of war camp in Germany, you know, of Allied soldiers. And uh, the arrangements were such that the Red Cross could send care packages to the soldiers because they could track where they were, right? So the families of these soldiers would put together these care packages and somehow have them sent uh, to their, you know, husbands or fathers or sons. And, you know, back then, a lot more people smoked. So quite often, these packages had quite a few cigarettes in them. Now, when people start to transact within the camp, they quickly realized that money was a, uh, an easier way to, to transact than barter. Because, you know, prior to finding money, you'd have to say, oh, okay, I got a, I got a chocolate bar and I'm going to trade them for, uh, I don't know, a pack of gum or, right? But, they, but if you agree on a money, um, so I'm going to cut it short here, but what happened is over time, people decided that the best form of money were cigarettes. So everything was basically expressed in the price of a cigarette. Now, some of the soldiers didn't smoke, but many of them did. So what happened is that, let's say you started with 100 cigarettes in the camp, and over time, 70 of them got smoked. Well, your money supply went from 100 cigarettes down to 30. As that happened, prices fell. Now, they fell. Why? Because you started with the capacity to purchase things with a total of 100 cigarettes. Well, when that capacity comes down to 30, you have a lot less money chasing goods. And what they observed was when the next care packages came in with a whole bunch of cigarettes again, the money supply ballooned again and prices to go up okay so it, again it's this is a simplified version but it explains what or how an increase in the money supply will increase prices because prices are the meeting point of your supply and demand curve so if you have a lot more demand because well let's say in this case you have a lot more supply of dollars right it it will increase prices. And then when you have less. So the Bank of Canada, since the beginning of COVID, quadrupled its balance sheet. So in other words, they they created money out of thin air. They purchased a massive amount of bonds from the government, which flooded the market with all kinds of money. Meanwhile, what we did, of course, is that we reduced the supply of goods because we basically shut down a big chunk of the economy. So what do you have? You have a lot more money than before and fewer goods. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Price is going to go up because you've got a lot of money chasing fewer goods. Mm -hmm. Just like there's often confusion around price inflation and monetary inflation, there's often confusion around the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Can you explain the difference in those? Okay. Well, monetary policy is anything that has to do with the control of interest rates 
and the money supply. So again, if a central bank say produces a lot of money out of thin air for the purchase for the purpose of purchasing government bonds again for the purpose of keeping interest rates low because as an aside here we do tend to think of say a bond price being determined by what the interest rate is but it's actually the reverse like interest rates will be set by the purchase price of a bond so if the bank of canada comes in and purchases like with a lot of purchasing power uh, drives the price down of a bond um, or sorry, the, the increases the price of a bond, it's going to decrease interest rates because price of bonds and interest rates are inversely, um, uh, th th there's an inverse re relationship. So if you drive the price of a bond, you're gonna reduce interest rate. And the Bank of Canada or any central bank for that matter can do this um, artificially, right? I mean, that, that's how they, they more or less determine what interest rates are going to be. So. Money supply, interest rates, that's the monetary side of things. Fiscal um, is anything to do that, that has to do with government spending, uh, taxation level. So often you will hear about fiscal, um, fiscal measures that are stimulative. Well, an example would be cutting taxes. The argument there that if you cut people uh, taxes, they will have more money left in their pocket with which they can go and purchase goods or services, which certainly in the short term would have a stimulative impact. Um, you know, government spending can, can sort of do the same thing. So again, to summarize, monetary policy is about uh, the money supply and interest, the control of interest rates Fiscal is more to do with the taxation level and government spending. So, so the latter one would actually be done by the politicians because they would uh, vote on budgets that would drive those elements, whereas the former is done by the central bank of whatever country, right? The, the Fed in the U.S., Bank of Canada in, in this country. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the reason I, I bring up those two points is because when government spending and debt is financed by the central bank. Uh, this begins what we would call the Austrian business cycle theory, or the boom and bust cycle. Uh, it was first put forward, I think, by Ludwig von Mises, and Hayek's work on this is what won him the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, can you explain that theory and the role politicians and central banks play in it? Okay, there's a lot there. I'll try to keep it relatively simple. But the work of Mises was to try to explain, because he was not satisfied with the idea that the, the business worked in, in these cycles, right? That there was just part of the free market that you would have these boom and bust, right? Like periods of great growth or whatever, and suddenly a massive recession and and people saying, well, that's just the way it is, right? And he was not satisfied with pretty lousy excuse when you think of it. I mean, that's just the way it is. So based on his study, he came to realize that it was actually driven by um, artificially low interest rates and uh, easy credit. Now, so this is where the, the, the theory comes in. 
let's assume that you have a, a market where there, there is no intervention on the part of the bank, right? Like interest rates are not um, artificially lowered or, or made higher. I mean, it, it's basically what the market um, has decided with, among all these millions of free participants. Okay. Now, let's assume that you are in a situation where people save a lot of money, right? I mean, they, they set aside a large amount of their, so now, and saving, uh, as has been repeated many times, is simply deferred consumption, right? I mean, you save the money, not to save it forever, but to save it for uh, a later period. Now, so if as a society, there's an awful lot of savings, the saving has to be lent, right? I mean, you, you would park your money, say, at the bank, and the bank would then try to find people who would be willing to, to borrow. Now, interest rates, again, in a free environment, is basically the cost of borrowing. Now, if you have an awful lot of savings, it's likely to drive interest rates low. Why? Because you have such a glut of savings that in order to get people to take it off your hand, well, you can't charge them too much. Right. It would be the opposite if there was hardly any savings at all. Interest rates would be quite high because then um, you, you people would have to come to you and say, look, there's not a lot of saving and I want your savings. So I'm willing to pay a lot of money for it through higher interest rates. So let's go back to, say, the, the, the lot of savings element. Well, the signal that is given there by the interest rate is that. Oh, we have a lot of savings, a lot of deferred consumption, which means that people don't want to consume now. They want to consume in the future. Well, that's a signal to the entrepreneur that I can go borrow the money and invest it in things that are longer uh, dated in terms of outcome, right? Like it, it, it wouldn't be for projects that are six months or a year in nature, but they would be more five year, 10 years possibly even 20 years, right? So they take the money and they invest it in these long dated projects. So this is all fine. The problem is if you have interest rates that are manipulated artificially, like driven low again by the Bank of Canada, what happens is that the entrepreneur gets fooled. He thinks there's a lot of savings. He thinks that people want to defer their consumption when in fact people possibly don't want to. So then you've got a whole bunch of money that gets invested in these long dated projects, but suddenly there's an immediate demand on the part of people who in a way would say, hey, I had nothing to do with this signal. I mean, I, would, I actually wasn't saving my money. The, this perceived saving was coming from the bank that produced all this money out of thin air. And what happens then is what Mises referred to as malinvestment. You had money allocated to invest in these long-dated projects when, in fact, the money was required for short-dated ones. So quite often, you, you would have a, a boom in, say, the construction business because it, it's longer-dated. So the money is, is allocated there when, in fact, it should have been allocated to something else. And when it comes to fruition, well, the only way to undo this is to liquidate the malinvestment, like the ones that were in the long dated one, which can be extremely painful, obviously. And then the, the, the whatever money you get out of this is to be reinvested where people want it, like where the demand is more immediate. So in a nutshell, 
the, the Austrian business cycle is basically describing how these boom and bust happen. Like there's a reason behind this. It's not, well, that's just the way the work is, the, the, the world is. It No, it there's, there's false signals given by interference in the marketplace. And as an aside, you know, I should say that I find it extraordinary that many, many economists long agreed, right, that central planning you know, doesn't work, that, that we ought to leave, leave the free market to decide what the price of a car is going to be or the price of bananas or, or whatever it is, right? That that's the best way to go forward with the one exception, that it's perfectly fine to do central planning with interest rates. And that, that doesn't make any sense to me. You cannot be inconsistent that way and say, oh, the free market is best for everything except when it comes to interest rate. Like it's, this is... This is a perfect example of central planning, right? I mean, we are going to manipulate interest rate because we think we can fine tune the economy. It doesn't work that way. And again, going back to the ABC, um, the Austrian business cycle, ABCT, um, it leads to these these terrible boost and uh, boom and bust cycles that you can trace back to them, not not to them. Like this is not the market at work. It's interference in the market that leads to these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've always thought myself that the interest rate is one of the most critical things to look at if you're looking at the health of an economy. But you have to have a free market in an interest rate to be able to for that to be able to give you any reliable data. Oh yeah, I mean these are market market signals that are just as important as prices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh so the most recent or maybe the most well-known event concerning uh, the Austrian business cycle and maybe, maybe a severe example of it is the 2008 housing crisis in the U.S. and the subsequent global financial crisis. Real estate is something that is especially sensitive to artificially low interest rates which cause inflation, and real estate is also very sensitive to price inflation itself. Um, can you expand on that and give us your thoughts on a potential debt crisis or housing market crisis or, or potentially a crisis in the dollar in Canada? Well, you know, to go back to 2008, there's no doubt that artificially low interest rates contributed to this. There were other elements, though. I mean, there was, I would say, almost quasi-fraud that took place. Um, I, I, I don't know if if our listeners uh, ever got a chance to watch the, the movie The Big Short or read the book. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Um, but it's fascinating in the sense that there were a few people who could actually observe what was going on instead of sticking their head in the sand and, and being blind. But I mean, these these so-called liars loan where nobody cared whether you had a job, right? I mean, they give you a mortgage. I mean, the, the amount of people who ended up um, with, with houses or mortgages that they should never have had was, was huge. I mean, yeah, they, that, that, was a, that was an element of it. I mean, and then they were um, repackaging these mortgages um, in, in tranches where like in the end, the rating agencies would come in and slap a triple A on, 
on these mortgage-backed securities that were actually awful, right? I mean, there was all this miss uh, signal. Everybody was chasing yields, again, because interest rates were so low, right? I mean, retirees or people on the verge of retirement um, couldn't possibly make ends meet on 2% return, right? So they were chasing all these artificial vehicles that had been created where the interest rate paid was much higher, but it was also complete junk. So when the whole thing collapsed, well, a lot of people got hurt. I mean, it, it was 2008 was a terrible, terrible time for many, many, many people. Now, to fast forward to this, um, this era in this country, I think our lending pra practices are way, way better in this country. I mean, I don't think we have liars loan. We don't have these sort of repackaging that go on. My fear is that the amount of debt in general, I mean, it's, it's government debt, it's individual debt, it's corporate debt, is so massive that significant increases in interest rates could very well cause a bloodbath. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who um, have taken, in my opinion, terrible advice and maxed out, say, the mortgage they took or loans when interest rates were low. And unfortunately, based on the, the false belief that interest rates would stay low forever, I mean, to combat inflation, interest rates are going to have to go up and they, they're going to have to go up a lot. And... When it happens, I'm afraid that there are people, I mean, I certainly don't wish this on anybody, but I think there's a lot of people who are going to find themselves at renewal time for their mortgages with possibly increases of, you know, three, 400 basis points. And then if that happens, someone's going to see their mortgage payment on a monthly basis go up to a point where they may not uh, be able to afford it. And what happens then is they may be compelled to sell their homes. But then what happens is that if, if home selling takes off, because a lot of people are caught in this position, then you got um, a, a very vicious cycle because then you got interest rates that, that uh, sorry, you, you got house prices that come down. They come down a lot, which means that people's equity might disappear, which, which leads them with less incentive to keep their homes and possibly come to market and sell them. I hope I'm wrong, but you know, if interest rates keep rising, um, I mean, the, the real estate market could just totally implode because right now it is so, so crazy. Um, I mean, in my hometown here of London, Ontario, we've seen massive increases and I know that it's the same in Toronto and in Vancouver. Um, so yeah, it could be, you know, there's, there's an old term in, in statistics about reversion to the mean, uh, which means that, yeah, you can you can have significant deviation from the norm, but eventually it does go back. Uh, and if you look at almost a parabolic increase in interest in um, house prices, you know, I, at some point it has to come back down and uh, could be very, very painful. Um, and then you, you, I think you had a question about the Canadian dollar. Well, I'll, let, let me say this. So with with the Bank of Canada manipulating interest rates and politicians wanting some sort of balance between value in the dollar and low interest rates, 
it really looks like we're stuck in a difficult position because I don't know that there's the political will to raise those interest rates. But the other side of that coin is unprecedented inflation, potentially. Uh, so, yeah, if you can speak to what that means for the dollar. Right. So I think that, you know, the Bank of Canada has painted itself in a terrible corner. And it's not just them, right? It's the feds in the U.S., uh, other central bank, the European uh, central bank as well, which is you have high inflation, and I'm using inflation here in terms of the sort of the new definition, which is, you know, prices increasing, you know, quite rapidly. Now, um, I don't think there's a precedent for dealing with inflation without getting real interest rates to be positive. Now, real interest rate is you take your nominal interest rate, which is what's posted minus the inflation rate. Now, right now in this country, real interest rates are still negative. And this, you know, this is quite perverse because, I mean, this is an, a, another element that is not good for the economy in general, is that this is a real burden on creditors because they get hurt. Because if you're loaning money at 3%, but inflation rate is, say, 7%, well, yeah, you may be nominally earning 3%, but you're falling behind all the time, right? But it's a real boon to the debtor. <laughs> I mean, if you, can, if you can borrow at 3% and let's say that your wages go up at 7%, well, then you can repay a loan with money that's been devalued. I mean, you know, that, that's a real plus. Um, anyway, that, that aside, the... If if we want to, and again, I, I'm not aware of any sort of historical precedent where you can tame inflation without uh, getting interest rates above the inflation rate, like which in this country would mean that interest rates would have to go to eight, nine percent, right? I mean, can you imagine what that would do to the economy? I mean, like the real estate market would would completely implode. I think now, is there an appetite to do this on the part of the Bank of Canada? You know, they say that they are bound and determined to bring inflation down. Okay, well, maybe they have a new way to do it. But, you know, going by the old way, um, I'm not sure if it's going to happen. Now, if they don't do that, then inflation is going to continue to be a problem. And inflation continues to be a problem. Well, that devalues the Canadian dollar. If the, the Bank of Canada decides that they, they don't want to sacrifice the economy and, and raise interest rates too much, then we're going to have an inflation problem. And an inflation problem is basically saying that your currency is losing its purchasing power, which is bad. I mean, there's a lot of people who think it's wrongly that it's good because, oh, it makes your exports cheaper, but it makes all your imports tremendously more expensive, right? I mean, there's all kinds of examples like Germany back when they had their own currency was a textbook example of a of a country that had one of the most one of the strongest currencies in the world and they still exported like like crazy um so it, it again it's it's these myths that are um perpetuated that well being a myth is not true yeah sure yeah 
central banks generally have a shroud of secrecy around them, and this weird mysticism is somewhat undeserved when they're really just this thing that lends the government money when no one else will so that they can finance all their terrible ideas. Um, but there are plenty of other reasons to audit a central bank, one being if there are dealings with foreign governments uh, that are not in the best interest of Canadians. Another is that there's evidence of the Bank of Canada uh, providing corporations with welfare-type bailouts without the politicians in Ottawa even being aware of it. Uh, can you give me your thoughts on uh, other reasons to audit the central bank and what type of things that their so-called independence might allow them to do without politicians and Canadians being aware of it? Well, I'll take the, the latter part because that's one that I'm more familiar with. And I'll start with the, the Fed in the U.S. I mean, there the, the were elected officials who were trying to find out exactly um, which, you know, investment bank or whatever were being propped up and by how much. And if I recall properly, I think it was like pulling teeth. And I don't think they actually got quite the answers that they wanted. So, they, in, in fact, I think they were kind of hiding behind some kind of you know, like the, the, the ubiquitous uh, national security stuff where we can't tell you who we're bailing out and by how much. I mean, that is totally unacceptable, right? That, that you know, a central bank would be allowed to, to do that. Um, the case in point is 2008 in this country. Now, I cannot verify this. Uh, this was said to me um, by someone who claimed to know but I am told that I think it was the CIBC they were talking about that the CIBC ended up um, being propped up secretly. I mean, it never made the news. Again, uh, you know, people will, you know, people in these positions of power will come up with quite often grotesque excuses as to why the, you know, the, the, the common people like you and me are not allowed to know these things because we, we just don't understand them. Um, I beg to differ, but um, the point would be, no, we need to have transparency. You can't, you know, start picking and choosing. And yeah, so, so this would be a, you know, a perfect um, element to, to audit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, Jacques, well, we are out of time today. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. And... I'll see you soon. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. That was Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. You can follow him on Twitter at Vote Boudreau. The Libertarian Party of Canada is at libertarian.ca. And to make sure you never miss an episode of the Darcy Giroux podcast, subscribe on Substack. <laughs>